0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, editor in chief of Proceedings Magazine. Today is Monday, August 8th, and it has been a busy and interesting week in naval and global security news. Chinese military exercises continued over this past weekend in the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last week. Our USNI news team has uh, provided a lot of coverage, uh, including a, a great story this morning highlighting 11 Chinese PLA rocket forces ballistic missiles landing in waters near Taiwan and in Japan's uh, exclusive economic zone. Uh, China's two active duty uh, aircraft carriers have been underway for the past week. The USS Ronald Reagan, cvn 76 the USS Tripoli Tripoli LHA-7 and the USS America LHA-6 are also underway in the 7th Fleet AOR right now. So, some folks have reached out to me via LinkedIn and and, uh, other uh, avenues and asked why uh, China is so upset about Speaker Pelosi's visit last week. A couple of things. First, she was the highest ranking US leader to visit Taiwan in 25 years. And second, Chinese President, Communist Party Chairman Xi Jinping is preparing for this fall's 20th Party Congress, and he is aiming for an unprecedented third term as leader. So, he has to look tough right now. Uh, We are living in interesting times, to be sure. Uh, Quick uh, sponsor update. Today's episode is brought to you by Raytheon Missiles and Defense. The SPY-6 family of radars is not just revolutionary, it's ready now. SPY-6 is being integrated on ships across the U.S. fleet to provide greater range, increased sensitivity, and more accurate discrimination for air and missile defense. Learn more at rtx.com forward slash SPY-6. A uh, quick reminder, we have two deadlines for essay contests coming up very soon. Our annual Marine Corps essay contest has a deadline of 31 August and a top prize of $5,000. And our fiction contest, co-sponsored with the Center for International Maritime Security, or SIMSEC, has a top prize of $500 and a deadline of mid-September. To find out more about our essay contests, go to usni.org forward slash essay contests. Okay, now it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Major General Greg Martin, U.S. Army, retired. He is the author of a courageous and introspective article in the August issue of Proceedings. It is titled, Bipolar General, What Can We Learn? It appears starting on pages 62 and 63 of the August issue, or you can find it online at usni.org forward slash proceedings. General Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you. All right, sir, I want to highlight a little bit about your background for our our listeners and viewers who perhaps haven't heard of you before. You served 36 years in the U.S. Army. You graduated from West Point, class of 79. You were a combat engineer. You led a brigade in combat operations in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. You have a Ph.D. from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you are the bipolar general that's mentioned in this article. It's an autobiographical piece. You start by saying bipolar disorder struck you in 2003. You were a brigade commander. You were in Iraq, and you served for the next 11 years with unrecognized, undiagnosed, and worsening mental illness. Sir, what was that like?
1: Well, I didn't ever know that I had a mental illness. I never realized I was bi- I had bipolar until I was diagnosed in November of 2014. So 11 full years later was the first time I ever realized that I had bipolar disorder. So now that I know I had bipolar, at least since 2003, I first went into mania, and but it was a high performing mania where I had tremendous energy, enthusiasm, focus, drive, problem-solving skills, creativity. It helped me perform at a much higher level than I otherwise would have. Um, I felt like Superman. I didn't need sleep. So the whole attack to Baghdad, uh, you know, it was the mania actually helped me. And I felt great. I was euphoric the whole time. Once the regime fell and we settled into what became the bulk of the one year deployment. We settled into, you know, a, a form of guerrilla warfare, counterinsurgency, that sort of thing. And we're living on base camps. Um, that's when I sort of things sort of shifted and I went into periods of depression, but they were relatively short, like a couple hours, maybe a couple days, but then I'd bounce back out of it. And the depression was characterized by low energy, uh, sometimes confusion, withdrawal from people. Sometimes uh, I could be indecisive um, and just really being down. But again, in Iraq, most of my experience was manic. But when we got back to Germany, and then over the next decade, my manic highs got higher and higher. My depressive lows sunk lower and lower. Until 2014, president of National Defense University, I went into what they call full-blown mania, where essentially I, I went into a state of uh, madness. Um, I was insane. Um, that did not really feel good. It was it was kind of a bizarre experience. Still didn't know there was anything wrong with me, and then um, my performance became so erratic, and number you know a lot of people. Reported to the chairman's office saying, "Hey, we think there's something wrong with General Martin. He's really acting crazy, disruptive, over the top." And then General Dempsey, the chairman, he did a series of um, assessments and an investigation, and he came to the conclusion that I did have a mental illness, and he removed me from command and gave me a command order to get a mental health evaluation, which I did. In fact, July 2014, that month, I got three evaluations. All three of them said you're fine, you're fit for duty. And we didn't know I had bipolar until I sank into terrible depression with psychosis. And four months later, I was a zombie, I couldn't function. And at that point, the doctors said, aha, you have bipolar disorder. And I was thankful for the diagnosis because then I said, I knew something was wrong with me when I was in depression and psychotic. And I was grateful that they diagnosed me so I could go about getting uh, healed and recover.
0: Sir, for our listeners, I just wanted to say that um, I was a student at at NDU, the National Defense University, the year that you took over. So that was in first or second semester of the 2012-2013 academic year. And you came in and you just had all this incredible energy. And I remember all of us were all the students and, and you know all of my buddies uh, in in our seminars, we were like, my God, this guy's amazing! You know, you had combat experience in Iraq, you were uh, you had a PhD from MIT, and when you spoke to the student body at NDU, you just had all this energy, right? And I think and you you reference that a little bit in your article. where You say people called you like the the Huya Bunny, and uh, I mean the Energizer Bunny. Like, the, the people recognized you as this incredibly energetic person. And then, you know, a year later, we all heard that you had left under a cloud and it was like, what, what happened? And we started to hear some of the rumors. But I, I was incredibly um, proud to be here at the Naval Institute when you submitted your first article on mental illness to us, which we published a year ago. And then this longer piece, which is, you know, and many people have already reached out to us uh, this in the past couple weeks since we published it just said, wow, kudos for General Martin being so brave to share his story because it's a, you know, it's not one that you hear. Right. And uh, so I wanted to ask you um, among senior officers, is there a a sense that uh, PTSD and mental illness is something that happens to other people or happens to more junior people or happens to people who aren't as tough as I am? for example, you know, what, what's, the, what's the sense of stigma or, or is there even um, conversation that happens among senior officers about mental illness or about feeling the need to get some help?
1: So I've been off active duty since 2015, but I would say it was a topic that was discussed. Um, people were encouraged to go get help. There are a handful of senior officers, general officers, who came out in the open with their problems, their challenges with depression, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and the like, and they were really applauded for coming out in the open and setting a really, really good example. And since then, I think there have been more, and there's also been a number of senior non-commissioned officers who have come out and you know with their with their issues. So I would say there's more people that are recognizing it and getting help and treatment um, for mental health conditions.
0: Gotcha. Uh, sir. what was it, you know, uh, being two star, everyone looking up to you? uh, I just would like for our, our listeners and viewers here, if you'd share a little bit more of the stories of, you know, what you went through in that the last six months or so before General uh, Dempsey relieved you, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of things that you sort of felt yourself doing. And then, you know, the six months or so after, and, and you just described a little bit of, you had, you had three, um, you know, interviews with mental health professionals and you were not diagnosed. And then it took a couple months to get a diagnosis. And I think you went into the VA system. You were up in Vermont for a while, living up in Vermont and and using the the v, big VA hospital up in White River Junction, but take us through a little bit of what you know a, a year in the life of General Martin was from that that last six months of being the president of NDU to suddenly finding yourself in a in a VA hospital. Sure, um, so the last six months, I elevated
1: into a state of full blown mania. You know, all the characteristics of mania, you know, incredible energy, enthusiasm, drive, creativity, talking rapidly with forced speech, flight of ideas, a a sense, a feeling of grandiosity where I believed I was on a direct mission from God to to transform into you. Uh, Extreme religiosity. I mean, my religious um, behaviors went to extreme excess. Um, So what was I doing at NDU in terms of mission? So General Dempsey brought me in there in the summer of 2012 with a very clear mandate to lead transformation and change at NDU. He felt that it was underperforming. It was behind the times and it, it needed to be upgraded to be more relevant, more effective, um, more, more integral to us defense. Um, And I had worked for General Dempsey four times in the past, you know, going back to 1997. And he really liked the transformation work I had done at the Army War College previous to NDU. And so he said, Greg, you know, same playbook, go in there, make the changes. It's going to be tough because you've got a lot of entrenched uh, bureaucratic resistance. But, you know, you already know how to deal with this stuff. You know, go for it. Um, we'll, we'll talk at least once a quarter, if not more often, and, um, let me know how things are going and if you need any help or support or whatever. So I went in there and, and I was given the mission, you know, uh, you know, go in and break China. So I went in very aggressively, which was partly a reflection of my bipolar disorder and the mania that had really taken over my mind. I was very aggressive, you know, really leaning forward, making big decisions rapidly with the full support of the chairman but as we all know from studying leading organizational change you know it you have you can only go as fast as the organization will allow you to go and as fast as they'll um, accept and uh you know you can't smash your way to transformation and organizational change. So I generated a lot of resistance, you know, whatever normal resistance there would be, which you're always going to have in any government organization or any large organization. The resistance was fierce. Uh, Senior officials at NDU started leaking negative reports to uh, the media about me. Uh, There were, you know, some articles written. Uh, People started organizing a, a, a very effective guerrilla campaign to slow me down and to undercut what the chairman was trying to do. And that was going on at the Pentagon and at NDU and in the different colleges and in the faculty and on the staff. And I just, you know, I'm a combat engineer and it's, you know, you go forward fast and hard and fight your way through resistance. And I was not going to slow down. And I got nothing but great feedback from, you know, my chain of command going up to the chairman. So what happened though was a couple months into that, I started as the resistance grew, the pressure, the stress on me was like pouring gasoline on an already burning fire. And I erupted into a madman. I mean, saying that I was mad is not overstating it. And everything that I was doing in my manic state got higher and higher. Um, to where, you know, sometimes I would you know talk for two hours in a row. I'd call unprogrammed meetings. Um, I couldn't keep track of time. I pretty much stopped doing administrative work, which is hurts the organization. Um, and that's the point where all these reports went up to General Dempsey. And I also had this growing uh, psychosis, which consisted of, Uh, mostly delusions, paranoia, and some hallucinations. I would be at meetings and I would have flashbacks into Iraq, you know, with bombs going off and explosions and, you know, dead bodies and fires. And I would, I literally would feel like I was back on the battlefield in Iraq, um, like I was the commander, like I was Superman. I would also see people who I knew were my bureaucratic foes I would see, and this is a hallucination, their faces morph into, you know, creatures like rats and snakes and things like that. Um, I mean, that's pretty out there, but I just took it in stride and kept going. And I developed this deep paranoia that people were out to get me, which they were, actually. Uh, They wanted to get me fired, which they did, actually. And This and then where the where the paranoia took over on its own is I then in my own sick brain thought they wanted to see me get arrested, put in jail where I would be, you know, tortured, beaten, murdered, dying in a pool of blood in jail. And so that that delusion took me over and I started drinking more and more and I started going on more midnight bike rides, you know, riding my bike as fast as I could through D.C., hallucinating I was flying over the monuments and uh that aspect of my bipolar was very hellish it was frightening it was creepy it was it was you know just not something that was pleasant or fun and then you know I got removed from the job uh based on my craziness and then I went and got all these evaluations and they said and and I didn't believe there was anything wrong with me I thought it was a plot to get me out of NDU to stop the transformation. And that was in fact, partly true, which is the nature of delusions. There's always a kernel of truth in your delusion, but then it's spun into a much bigger web uh, that's not true. Um, but once the doctors told me you're okay, there's nothing wrong with you, I totally believed in it. I said, "Ah, these people—they did plot to get rid of me. This was an orchestrated campaign of guerrilla warfare." And then I went for about a month where I was intensely angry, bitter, manic. I was in a state of mania, but it wasn't the happy, joyful mania. It was angry, bitter mania. Where, I mean, I'm fortunate that I didn't resort to violence. Um, that I didn't get arrested, that I didn't crash in car, that, that, you know, all kinds of bad things can happen in a manic state. So that went on for several months until I spiraled and crashed into severe depression. And, you know, the, finally the doctors diagnosed me correctly and I was in terrible shape for, in fact, for the next two years through my retirement, in uh may of 2015 until i began to recover almost two almost uh two years later i was literally in a fight for my life um i had what in the va was what saved me and they were terrific Um, they detected um, what they call passive suicidal ideations fortunately i never had um, active ideations where i wanted to take my own life but passive ideations are equally deadly potentially deadly and dangerous And what a passive ideation, for example, with me, is I had these ideations that I was still going to get arrested, put in jail, beaten, murdered, killed in jail. That's a passive ideation. The other thing is I would have these visions, um, sort of delusions that an invisible force would grab me and throw me under the wheels of a rapidly moving 18-wheeler truck. And my body would be ripped apart. My arms, legs, head would be torn off, thrown in all directions, or that I'd be driving a car and the same invisible force would grab my hands and, and drive me right into a bridge abutment or, an, or another oncoming truck. And so when I went to the VA, the, the doctor there, the psychiatrist, he was the first person that ever asked me, uh, Do you have any morbid thoughts of death or dying? No one had asked me that question in the military system or civilian. And I said, Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And so I explained to them what they were. And he said, Whoa, um, those are. Um, passive ideations. And he said, do you want to die? And I said, well, to be honest about it, for the good of my wife, my family and the world, I think everybody would be better off if I were dead. Uh, I don't want to kill myself, but it would be good to die. Everybody would be better off. And so after that conversation, the psychiatrist at the VA said, hey, we've got a great inpatient facility, multidisciplinary treatment, um, I think it'd be really good for you to go and and stay, you know, so I, I was there for weeks. But, um, you know, going back to your question, so I talked about the six months before being removed from command, and I think I covered the six months after removal from command. But at that point, after I'd been removed and diagnosed, I was living in what I call bipolar hell. I mean, your life is just hellish miserable, full of delusions, hallucinations, fear. The high point of my day was going to bed at night and then hoping I wouldn't wake up in the morning.
0: That must have been just absolutely terrifying, all of that. And um, how was your family reacting while you were going through that you know, bipolar hell?
1: It was really hard on them. Um, I had two sons who were on active duty in the army at the time, and they were both overseas deployed, Afghanistan. um, And they kept in touch to monitor how I was doing. Um, My wife, who I call St. Margaret, she was just, I mean, she was badly, badly shaken by this whole experience because she didn't know what was going on. And and for her, it was such an incremental buildup to the full-blown mania and the insanity. She didn't realize there was something really wrong until about the same time that General Dempsey realized it and removed me from command. But so she was kind of like a frog in a pot of water that heated up slowly over time, years, months. And then she was just the, the frog that got boiled at the end. But um, she was rock steady. She never quit on me. Never gave up. Was always supportive, trying to get me help. Uh, didn't you know? Freak out and and go crazy herself, or you know, walk away or divorce me or anything. And I asked her. I said, Maggie, why a lot of spouses would have left someone who was so mentally ill and such a basket case as me? You know, what made you stay with me? And she said, the big thing was that I never quit never gave up, kept trying to get better that and so she had the she believed that as long as I wanted to get better and I kept trying that she wouldn't quit either. So she was she was tremendous and then we had our youngest son actually he was going to college in DC so he lived at home with us at Fort McNair when I was at NDU um, and he was uh, very astute, very compassionate, really smart, Uh, knew what was going on, and he actually had friends on the staff and faculty at NDU that he would talk to about me, and so he had kind of a good thing going on to try to help me.
0: We've got a few comments from uh, our our listeners and viewers who are just saying uh, thank you for speaking out on mental health, Uh, salute to the general for being such an amazing advocate uh, and, and for the course of his service. I wanted to get to there's there's a couple of things at the end of your article where you talk about what the military can do better as an institution to support individuals uh, who suffer from uh, mental illness and PTSD and bipolar. And then you also talk about what what can an individual person do? Um, One of the questions that that has gone through my mind is. what do we do for our, you know, our battle buddies, our shipmates, our fellow Marines and sailors and soldiers? If if we're serving with somebody who we suspect, like General Dempsey did with you, right, uh, has, has, is battling mental illness or is dealing with PTSD, or, or even perhaps even harder is the question, what do you do when your boss has got a problem like you had when you were a, the NDU president? How do you deal with that in your shipmates or in your, among your bosses?
1: So the the first thing institutionally is we need to improve our training in order to be able to recognize the signs of a mental health disorder or a mental health issue. Because remember, somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of global population, so that includes you know, the United States, it includes the U S military, 20 to 25% have, or are suffering from some kind of mental health uh, condition. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, so extrapolate that for a, for a military that's 2 million people. Um, so number one, you have to, um, you have to train for it. Um, like in my case, over, over the whole period I had bipolar, I went back and interviewed a whole lot of people from brigade command on and, um, Many of them, in retrospect, says, oh, yeah, we recognized something unusual, something that wasn't right, but we didn't know what it was. We just thought you were like super energetic and enthusiastic, which was true. But I was going beyond that into a state of mania. So they didn't they didn't recognize it. Uh, number two, if they did recognize it, nobody talked about it. Nobody said anything. And I think that's because subordinates are naturally reluctant to address a mental health topic with a superior. Number two, um, a lot of people really liked me. I mean, you said that, you know, people at NDU really admired people in my commands all the way from second Lieutenant Ford. I mean, they loved working for me because I was happy and energetic and we, we, we accomplished things. They felt great about the unit. We always had good morale. And so, they didn't want to do anything to hurt me, um, was a big was a big part of it. Um, so people, if they can recognize the symptoms, then they have to be prepared for the unpleasant conversations. Like me being a, a colonel or a general, I don't expect a private or, you know, a sergeant to come and say, "Hey, you know, Colonel Martin, you know, yeah, I think you're you have bipolar disorder. You ought to go get checked out." But there's all kinds of Alternative ways to have that conversation. Like a, a subordinate could go and speak to, you know, my deputy or um, to another 06. Or they could report it to the person above my head, like people really did with with me at NDU. I mean, the the they they reported what they thought. And rightfully so, because I thought there was nothing wrong with me, but I was wrong. There was something wrong. And so a lot of people, you know, dozens, went to the three-star general who kind of oversaw NDU. They they went to the chairman, they went to others. And I mean that was okay because it alerted the people above me, there's something going on with Martin. And to General Dempsey's great credit, he is a great leader. He he was he didn't rush to get rid of me. He didn't, um, you know, blackball me. He didn't do anything like that. He actually did a very deliberate series of assessments that looked at NDU. They talked to the students, talked to the faculty, and then they focused in directly on me as the leader. And he brought in outside people who didn't have a dog in the fight. And, you know, when Dempsey got those back briefs, he came to the overwhelming conclusion, hey, there's something wrong with Greg. For his good, his family's good, and the NDU's you know, health, I need to get him out of there in order
0: him to get an evaluation. And, and I, Did you know that that did you know that the chairman was doing that evaluation while you were president? Did you know that yeah. that was all going on? Yeah, I, I
1: did. I knew. And um, he told me he was doing it. He told me he was, what he's going to do. But I was so manic. I was like, hey, that's great. General Dempsey, thank you. That's wonderful. I'll get even more good feedback on the great transformation that we're doing. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I mean, the day that he removed me from command, I mean, I walked in his office and um, I, I didn't know if he was going to promote me, fire me, extend me. And um, but I walked in the office. I mean, I should have known I was getting fired, but I didn't because I was so manic. And uh, I walk in the office. I saw the lawyer. I said, "Ooh, this is not good. I'm probably going to get fired. And, you know, Dempsey, he he said, he walked across the room, gave me a big hug, said, Greg, I love you like a brother. And you've done an amazing job, but you have until 5 p.m. today to resign or I will fire you. And oh, by the way, I'm ordering you to get a, a mental health exam this week. Um, and when he said that to me, I said, thank you, sir. You know, this is great because that means God is moving me from NDU to an even bigger and better assignment. You know, I'm, I'm taking my assignments from God. And that's very characteristic of intense mania.
0: Wow. That's that just what an amazing, amazing story! We got a couple of people who are uh, throwing into the chat here. That uh, protecting sleep, you know, also protecting sleep will minimize mental health issues. We're complex machines; more sleep keeps these issues minimized. I've just, you know, you you talked a lot about going without sleep in your manic state, uh, and uh, you know, I've heard so many people uh, in combat operations who who tend to go for you know, days without sleep, sometimes weeks without sleep or sleeping, you know, an hour or two a night. Um, What's your experience with sleep and how did that play? Did that play at all when you were finally getting the help you needed through the VA system and and follow on care? Did sleep become part of, you know, how you got on top of this?
1: Yes, sleep is you know, way undervalued and, and not strongly understood how important it is for the brain and, and your entire uh, healthfulness. But once I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I said, OK, you know, bipolar's this is bad. I mean, it can lead to suicide and all kinds of other things. So all the things, you know, I started reading books about it, watching videos, et cetera. And one of, excuse me, the most important things is sleep. And um, so following the diagnosis, I started sleeping more, building it into my schedule. Um, And then since the VA, the stay at the VA and my recovery process, sleep is an absolutely fundamental part of my healthy living and my ongoing lifelong recovery. So, I mean, I I discipline myself and my wife's a big help on this. So, I mean, I mean, we go to bed. I mean, we're lights out sleeping by 10 p.m. And we don't wake up until 6 a.m. So that's eight solid hours, which, you know, all the medical people say that's that's good. Um, And I also have developed that I can do it in my retirement. But even if you're on still on active duty, if you can um, build in a way to take a nap. Even a short cat nap of 20 minutes can make an amazing difference in your brain health and in your in, in your overall health. And I, so I take a nap every afternoon. I call it my fitness nap. Um, so if, if I were to, to stop sleeping in a healthy, consistent manner, that could be enough to trigger a relapse in my bipolar disorder and bring on another full, onset of bipolar. That's how important sleep is. Um, So prior, my life habits, you know, I think when I was in high school, I probably got enough sleep. When I was a a cadet at West Point, I probably didn't. And then coming up in the army, um, like as a lieutenant and when I was single, I mean, we worked really hard. We played really hard. We stayed out late. We went on, you know, I was stationed in Europe the first six years. You know, we went on incredible road trips on the weekends all over Europe. And I mean, you know, with almost no sleep between the driving, you know, the partying, the sightseeing, the skiing. And um, and then when I got, you know, when I went to MIT and got all those degrees, I was not sleeping, I was working all the time. And then by then I got, you're kind of a senior officer as an 05, 06, battalion command, brigade command in the equivalent on a ship. I mean, I was totally bought in to the army and the military ethic and profession. I mean, my, over a period of years, I mean, my life morphed to where I was the army, the army was me, it was, it was my work, it was my play, it was my pleasure, it was everything. And so again, I, I got, I, I didn't get much sleep. And all those years, decades of not enough sleep, I think probably were contributing factors to the onset of my bipolar disorder.
0: Well, there's certainly so many people that even if they don't have diagnosed mental illness, you get to the end of your military careers, and and so many veterans have sleep disorders, right? Sleep apnea and and, and all you know, you end up going to a sleep study when you get ready to retire for your VA physical and all those kinds of things. Uh, so it's it's definitely a problem, and and uh, proceedings. Uh, readers and, and, and our members will recognize that we've published a lot of articles uh, primarily in the last couple of years by Captain John Cordell, who is a surface warfare officer, and uh, oftentimes with a co-author, Dr. Nina Shattuck at the Naval Postgraduate School. And they have done a lot of uh, looking at sleep, uh, the 2016 collisions uh, of the U.S. Seven Fleet ships, the Fitzgerald and the McCain sleep played, uh, you know, came out in the, uh, the, the follow-on um, investigations into both those collisions, and then um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, of effort in the Navy to what what we call going to a circadian watch rhythm, where instead of pushing your body in the in the negative direction, you're letting people have the same consistent sleep cycle uh, day after day after day. So you 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 make the ship's work conform to some extent, so that people can have consistent time to sleep and and including what you just said, the battle nap, right? Having that 20, 30 minute nap kind of middle of the day or afternoon where you can sort of reset and, uh, and, and de-stress a little bit. That's a great point. Um, so we're, we're running short of time here, but I wanted to let you get to a couple of things that you, that you cite at the end of your article, which is as an individual, uh, how did you get on top of, you know, get ahead of, get under, you know, get, Uh, your bipolar disorder under control? And what what are are some um, recommendations that you have for others who might find themselves really struggling with PTSD or mental illness of any uh, any type?
1: Number one, go get help. Um, Go see a medical professional and get evaluated. And if you get diagnosed with a mental health uh, condition, don't fight it, don't deny it. Like in my case, I embraced it. I said, okay, this is the truth. I know there's something wrong with me. And the problem is bipolar disorder. There's something wrong with my brain. So then how can I get better? So I worked closely with psychiatrists, therapists, and figured out, you know, it took a couple years to get the right medication, which for me, the gold was the the magic uh, bullet was lithium which is really very, very effective for bipolar disorder. And for me, you know, after it, it, it basically stabilized my mood very quickly, made me feel good. And um, so you get to get on the right medication. Then I would say work with a therapist because the therapists don't prescribe medicine, but they can give you coping skills and figure out what are the triggers in your life? What are the topics, the people the situations that can trigger you into agitation anger anxiety uh, and you need to know those because those that can trigger you back into a full a full up episode again of bipolar or some other you know mental condition so th- you, the medical stuff is it's and, and then you need to live healthfully i mean diet sleep Exercise, low stress, plenty of water. So I would say put that first basket of items that I just covered in healthful living and medication. Those are absolutely necessary, but they're not sufficient for recovery. In order to reco- have build a recovery that's you know built to last, there's you need to build a social platform. Um, and in the article, I talked about the four P's. Um, You know, number one is people. Develop a network of energetic, happy, fun people who make you happy. Number two, live in a place, so people place that is safe, that energizes you, that inspires you, that enables you to do the things you want to do for your overall mental health. Number three, develop a purpose, come up with an individual mission, which the military is great at, we all need a mission. So what's your mission? And it should be something that is bigger than yourself, inspires you to get up every day and work at it. Like for me now, it's mental health advocacy. The fourth the fourth P is perseverance. I mean, you can have all this stuff set up, but if you don't want to get better and want to stay well and fight. If you have to have a fighting spirit, the will to win in order for this all to succeed. And then the last one, the, the fifth P, which I just learned about this week is, is, uh, is, presence. And, you know, I've had situations where I've lost perspective and the idea of presence is situational awareness and being able to adapt to the music that's being played, as opposed to the music you want to play, mm. and being mentally and psychologically flexible so that you don't run into anxiety. Those are the main elements of recovery. And you know, my my, uh, I had an article published in Psychiatric Times, and um, that's in a nutshell what I wrote the article on. And they loved it. They said, "Oh man,
0: this is great!" And they hadn't seen anything quite like that. So, fantastic. Well, sir, we are out of time. Uh, this has been a great conversation. And I wanted to thank you again for the courage uh, and, and the, you know, your commitment to, uh, to, to talk to our, our viewers and our listeners and to write for proceedings to our audience uh, about your experience with PTSD and with bipolar disorder. Uh, I think the more that people talk about these problems, the more that people talk about the necessity of good health, of good sleep, of, of asking for help when you need, for, need help. Or asking for help for your shipmates or your your battle buddies who, who perhaps you know aren't recognizing the the, you know, the 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 problems that they're facing themselves. It's incredibly important, incredibly powerful for you know helping military people and the institution as a whole get better. So thank you so much for that. You're very
1: welcome, and um, thanks for bringing me on, and thanks for publishing the article. And I just want to say to you and the audience that you, Bill. And USNI and proceedings are doing an amazing
0: job. I mean, just so high quality and so good to work with. Thank you for that, sir. And and to your one of your P's there, the purpose. Um, I, I I can't tell people enough that you know this job, getting to do what I do as editor in chief of proceedings, it gives me that incredible energy and, and purpose to get up every morning and just keep doing it. Because um, you know, one of the I'll, I'll share this. I shared this with a group of plebes who are here. This past week, we have the the incoming class of 2026, which is unbelievable to me. That number, because I'm 87. Um, but uh, one of the one of the midshipmen asked me about, you know, what 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 part of my job did I like the best? And over the years, we've published people from you know, Lieutenant Chester Nimitz, Lieutenant uh, EJ King, Lieutenant Hyman Rickover. Uh, et cetera, right? Long before they became very famous Navy admirals and generals in the Marine Corps, et cetera. Uh, And I I always wonder, you know, which lieutenant, which major, which uh, midshipman that I'm working with now as as their editor is going to be the future uh, Medal of Honor winner, the future four-star, the future combatant commander, the future winner of a fight with, you know, whoever our, our national adversary is. So that, that jazzes me con- considerably. It, it just makes it a great job. But sir, thanks again for you. Um, and, and, you know, what, what a thrill for me to uh, work with you at NDU and then work with you on this piece. It was just, uh, it was great. So really enjoyed it. Thanks again. And I, uh, I look forward to uh, hearing more about what you're doing in, in your new mission in life um, as, as an advocate for mental health. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Heather Legg. This episode is brought to you by Raytheon. Raytheon Missiles and Defense is setting the pace of performance with the SPY-6 family of radars actively being integrated across the fleet. SPY-6 provides the clearest possible picture of the battle space with modular multi-mission capabilities that make it the most advanced radar on Earth. Learn more at rtx.com forward SPY-6. Until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.